Hi, and welcome to Bread. Twice a year, we dedicate two services to the vision of bread and how we can support the work of the church with our resources. Jesus spoke more about money than anything else other than the kingdom of God. He knew how important an issue it is. Unfortunately, the church hasn't always done a great job reflecting his teaching and his practices when it comes to how Christians should treat our finances. In this series, we want to get back to a Jesus-centered appreciation of money so that we might be the open, generous people God calls us to be, using our resources for eternal good and building the kingdom of heaven right here and now in Los Angeles. Thank you, everyone. Um, Welcome. It's great to have you with us, uh, particularly if you're checking us out, if you're a guest or visitor. um, You're, as we always say, oh, hello up in the balcony, masked people in the balcony. Nice to see you. Hello. Um, uh, My name's Ed, and I lead the church with Hannah. And uh, this is um, the second of two uh, talks in a mini-series about money and giving and generosity, which we do twice a year. Now, if you are uh, visiting us, if you are checking us out, please don't feel like this applies to you. Just let it wash over you. Hopefully, what I have to say will be interesting, but this is really for the home team. This is for people who consider bread to be their church. Uh, Now, if you would like Bread to be your church, and perhaps this brilliant talk that I'm just about to give will convince you that it is your church, then you can actually have all of this apply for you. Uh, But as we always say, churches are a bit like breakfast cereals. Some people like Cheerios, some people like Weetabix. You just pick the one you like and then go for it. Throw yourself into it. There are lots of very good churches uh, in this city. Um, Now, last week, uh, during the talk, we looked at the Old Testament view of money What never applied, no longer applies, and still applies. This week, it's more of the New Testament view. Now, one of the things that we have actually always been very sensitive to uh, when we, particularly when we moved here from the beautiful city of London to the beautiful city of Los Angeles uh, and to the US of A, was um, the baggage, I want to call it, that often people have um, received about pastors' churches asking for money. Um, I think there's actually quite a lot of this that surrounds uh, people. Some of it's legitimate, some of it's not. Um, But some of the less godly ways in which uh, churches have asked for money sits difficultly with people. And so we made a conscious decision that we're not really going to talk about money very much. We really don't talk about money much uh, other than these two sets of talks each year. Uh, And from what people have said to us, that's actually been uh, one of the reasons that they felt so keen to be part of the church, to feel safe in this church. There didn't seem to be this sort of underlying thing. I think that there is a fear, sometimes uh, founded, sometimes not, that actually quite a lot of churches and, and pastors, if you strip everything away, what they're really in for is themselves. And they would just quite like your money so that they can be rich. And so we've tried to, as best as we can, um, dispel that fear. However, there is a danger of swinging the pendulum so far in trying to avoid any sort of hint of manipulation or greed or ungodly teaching regarding money that we don't give enough time or focus to what is actually an incredibly important subject for all of us. On more than one occasion, people have actually said to me, uh, when we have, on the few occasions, addressed the subject, said, oh, I didn't actually know that you needed money at all. And I didn't really know that we had to give money to the church. Uh, So can I just 
set the record straight once and for all. Yes, we really need money. Good, you've got that. As we've said a number of times, Jesus talks about money more than any other subject other than the kingdom of God. And for good reason. He knows that it is vital for our spiritual, our emotional, our physical, and our mental health that we sort out our relationship to money. I want to suggest, and you can ask yourself this question, that the reason that all of us really fundamentally are part of church is we believe in some way deep down that we benefit from having a connection to Jesus. Deep down, we believe that Jesus can help us live better, fuller, more fulfilled lives. So, if that's the case, follow my logic here. If we are asking Jesus to help us live fuller, better, more fulfilled lives, but we are holding back from him fundamental parts of who we are, we are going to be restricting quite how much he'll be able to help us. It's a bit like getting sick, going to the doctor, but holding back half of the symptoms, half of your medical history, all of your um, mental state, and then saying to the doctor, make me well, make me well. There's a limit that we are placing on how much that person can help us. And so it is, if we hold back this part of us, our relationship to money from Jesus, knowing that actually Jesus is the one who can sort everything out, we're going to restrict the scope by which he's able to do that. Now, let me tell you this. Jesus loves you and cares for you and will always work with what he's given. But don't we really want as much as we can get from him? So, can I encourage you? Take courage. Exercise faith. Give him as best you can your relationship to money. It will do you good. Can I ask you, just as we start out, what is that relationship like? Think about that for a moment. How do you treat money? How does money treat you? And while you do that, let me read from Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church from chapter 9. Now, the context of this is there is a famine in Jerusalem, and the church there, which also happens to be one of the least well-off of the churches that Paul's planted, is suffering terribly. So, good old Paul has gone around all the other churches that he's planted all over the known world, and he said to them, including this one in Corinth, would you give to the Jerusalem church so that we can look after them so that they don't die? Now, I need to preface this with a sort of government health warning. This passage is about as peak Paul as you could possibly, possibly get. This is sarcastic. This is seemingly self-related. This is highly rhetorical. This is, some might say, nauseating Paul. All right? Are you ready for it? Here we go, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, says Paul, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry, i.e. the money collection, for the saints in Jerusalem. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, which is where Corinth is, has been ready since last year with all their money, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But 
I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I did say you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul is using all his powers of persuasion here to get the Corinthian church not to back out of the promise they have made to give some money to this church. One, he's appealing to their sense of competition, playing them off against the Macedonians. I bet you can do better than them. Secondly, he's appealing to their sense of pride. I've been boasting about you. Don't let me down. Third, he's appealing to their not wanting to be shamed. You will be humiliated if you don't do this. And fourthly, he's praising them for their willingness. You've been so keen that you've actually been ready for a whole year to give this money. All very persistently, persuasively poorly. But if we can remove our cynical hats for a second, there is actually something really quite moving going on here, I think. This is a newly founded community, which, if you know anything about First Corinthians, will know has some serious problems. The Corinthians are as bad as they get. They've got incest problems. That's the sort of problems they've got, and that's not the only one. So the Corinthians are all over the shop. And yet, it's nevertheless this bunch of people whom Paul has been boasting about. He's genuinely proud and loves these Corinthians. He's been defending them against criticism. He's been uh, recommending them to his friend Titus. He's genuinely thinking that these guys are wonderful. And they've been ready to give to this, no doubt, considerable gift for over a year. Such is their willingness. Such is their hope that they can't, you know, they can't start soon enough to give money. Despite all the rough edges around them, these are good people whom Paul really loves, just as he loves all the other people in all his other churches. And it's this mutual love, this love for one another, for each other, for God, from God, this experience of the grace of God, the love that flows into their hearts, that allows them to actually be generous-hearted people, for it to flow out of them. They can't help but love. They can't help but give. They want to support because they have received. I think despite his rhetorical flourishes, Paul is absolutely heartfelt in his love for them, his admiration for them. And now, without wanting to compare myself to Paul and you guys to the infest-ridden Corinthian church, I want to say something. Let me be heartfelt to you. I got a call this week from someone, and this person called me because they quite legitimately needed to challenge me on something. I've been coming to the church for a little time, got to know them, really, really loved them. Um, wonderful person. Uh, but they called me up, and they basically said, I've got to call you out on this thing. And the reality of it was, was I'm British, and I'm not trying to make any excuses for that. You know, it's a, it's a heavy burden to, to carry. Um, I'm British, and uh, in Britain, the way we show love to one another is uh, we tease them. 
Uh, that's just what we do. It's because we have um, uh, such emotional lack of intellect uh, that um, we need to cover up all our emotional deficiencies by being horrible to people as a sign of their, our love. It's like our sixth love language. You know the five love languages? It missed out the British one, uh, which is sort of the witty put-down. Anyway, I happen to really, really love this person. Uh, and because I loved them and I felt safe with them, I had said something to them, which was my showing of love to them, and they had actually been hurt by it quite legitimately. Um, and so I clearly overstepped the mark, and this person had called me up to say this to me, and I just went, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. The reality is it's just because I'm an idiot, and I love you, and I really love you, and I spent the time telling this person how much I loved them and valued them and thought they were great, which was wonderful. But what stayed with me was um, what courage because I know it had been a thing for this person to call me up. He doesn't know how I'm going to react. But he called me up to tell me this because he cares about me. He doesn't want me to hurt people. He wants to call me out on the things that I haven't got right. And I just felt, I am so lucky to have someone like that. That's why I'm talking about it publicly. Because I want to honor this person for doing that. That is a loving community. And we went to field day yesterday, and I have to say, I was dreading it. Um, <laughs> but it was wonderful. It was so brilliant. I mean, to be honest, it could have been a lot more competitive for my liking. It was low on competition. Uh, but what I saw was just a, a bunch of people really enjoying being with one another. This is the love we're supposed to have one another. I don't know if you think it, but I, I know it's 4th of July and we're very thin on the ground this, this week, but I think there's a sort of bubbling sense of belonging and community and love for one another that's very exciting to me. You know, just the fact that we've got a BPCPCPPPC or whatever it is, that we're doing these sorts of things. There is a sense of belonging and community. Let us foster that. So can I say, I love you. Hannah and I love you guys. We really do. It's been a long time coming. We started by going, I really don't like anyone who comes to our church. Uh, that's not totally true. It's partly true. Uh, but we really love you guys. Let us be vulnerable enough with each other, humble enough with each other to show love to one another, and let us also call each other out be honest enough with each other to not want us to stay where we are. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, says Proverbs. This is what I felt when this uh, person called me. That this has hurt him to do it. This, is, this has taken it out of him to do it. This has wounded him to have to have this conversation. But it's because he's a friend. Our relationship is so much stronger now. I pray that it will continue to be like that. So, that wasn't about giving. Um, yes. Okay, let's go back to the Corinthians and money. Yes. Uh, verse 6. The point is, says Paul, this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Garen, we're actually going to end there. I'm not going to go on any further than that. So here are some points about generosity and giving. Firstly, verse 6, do not sow sparingly. The image of the sower immediately would have everyone recollecting Jesus' parable of the sower. The sower here stands for God the the farmer who sows the seed, which is valuable. But in order to get a good harvest, you've got to just chuck it everywhere. Some of it will fall on good ground, some of it bad ground, some will get choked by weeds, but you've got to throw it everywhere because that's the only chance that the good stuff will take it. So you've got to chuck it wide, liberally and freely. Let me tell you my thoughts on election in the Bible, the idea of who God chooses. So God's redemptive plan starts really with the person of Abraham. And in Abraham, God chooses one person. Then in Israel, God chooses a whole nation. But in Jesus, God chooses the whole world. Past, present, and future. Every single one is chosen on the cross as Jesus holds out his hand saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I am buying them all back. I am choosing every single one. Now, no one has to respond, but everyone can because everyone has been chosen. This is the limitless, ridiculous, reckless generosity of God. It is spread all over the place to everyone, people who deserve it, people who don't deserve it, everyone. They all get it because this is the sort of God who is seen in Jesus, the real one. I'm not a betting man. Actually, that's not true. I quite like betting. (laughs) I think it's just a phrase that people say, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I I quite like betting. Uh, So I am a betting man. But anyway, if you think about the best people on earth, think about the, the, the best people on earth. I don't know who that is. Tom Hanks? Judy Dench? I don't know, let's say it's it's Tom and Judy, the best two people on the whole earth. Will they at some point have and continue to let God down? Not quite be perfect. Of course they will, even though Tom and Judy are almost faultless. They will. So, as bets, they, along with all of us, they're not good bets. We are like the three-legged horse in a two-horse race, and the other horse has got four legs. Does God know that we are not good bets? Absolutely. Before the race has even begun, he knows that we are destined to come up short. We are destined not to win. He knows that we are, in fact, the worst bets in history. All of us. Every single one of us. And yet... Does that, even in his full knowledge, stop him from betting every single thing on us? No. He bets it all. Such is the generosity of our God. It's so irresponsible. It's so reckless. It's so wasteful. But this is what he's like, and he calls us to be like it too, with everything we have. And the song we just sang, beautiful song, written by Ben and Tavia. Their gifts being given to the church. I've tried to get a co-write on it, uh, and they won't give it to me. But this is what we're called to do, to use what we have, our money, our gifts, our talents, for the benefit of everyone in this church and outside. So, 
Be like him. Spread it all as wide as you can. Be the first at the bar. Choose to pay for everyone's meal without even telling them. Just give the waiter your card. Be the person who, at the stoplight, when there is a sign saying homeless and hungry, you just get it all out of your wallet and give it all. Be like that, because that is what we're called to be. Totally reckless with our money. Did you know that nationwide, the time where restaurants have the hardest time getting wait staff, do you know when it is? Sunday afternoon. Do you know why it's on Sunday afternoon? Because that's when all the Christians come out of church and go to restaurants, but the Christians are the worst tippers. So restaurants refuse or find it so difficult to get weight stuff because they're not going to get tipped. That is an affront to God. That's disgusting to God. We should be the greatest tippers. We should tip the worst staff the most. We should tip the people who spit on our onion rings loads, not because we want to say something, not because, oh, can I now tell you about Jesus? No, just because we want to, because we love to give, because it flows out of us. Restaurants should be trying to bat away waitstaff on Sunday afternoon because everyone wants to work then because that's when the Christians come in. But sadly, it's completely the opposite. It's disgusting to our God. Do not be like that. Be free and reckless with your money. Don't sow sparingly. God hasn't, so neither must we. Verse 6, but do reap bountifully. When we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. I said last week, I have never regretted giving money away. That is true. But the reason I haven't regretted it is because actually I don't really give money for the sake of other people. I mean, I kind of do, but I don't really. I give money for my sake because it's good for me. It robs money of its power, and I know it has power over me. It can do, to corrupt me, to make me feel very stressed, to make me worry, to make me think I haven't got enough. And so ultimately, I, of course, I do give it for the sake of other people, but primarily I'm giving it for my sake. It's good for me. Now, we do not give in order to receive. God, as I also said last week, is not like a celestial slot machine that you keep piling in coins and at one day cha-ching, the whole thing's going to come back and more. God's not like that. He never promises that this is a terrible, horrible teaching, prosperity gospel. If you hear prosperity gospel, run a mile. Just run as far as you can to anywhere away from that because we do not give in order to receive. We give because we, we love to. And yet, there is something extraordinary about giving actually means that God will continue to look after us, both materially and spiritually. So it means we don't really need to worry that much about what happens to the money we give once we've given it. What will that person on the street do with the money? It doesn't matter. Not your problem. Now, obviously, I said giving needs to be reckless. It does. But it also needs to be responsible. We are called to responsibility as well, to ordered, well-thought-through, uh, um, planned giving. 
you should research and back winners. Find things that you love, that touch your heart, and give to them, and give in a way that most benefits that organization or person or church or whatever it is. I am so grateful that we have this kind of financial board. We have these three people who really understand money in a way that I really don't. I used to think I was really kind of, um, I can't even say, uh, financially astute. I realized talking to people who are actually financially astute and wise, I am not. So I'm very grateful for these three people who basically have stopped us going bust over and over again. I just think, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And they say, no. Uh, so it's good to you. They are professionals. And it's good for you to use your gifts to help things work well. They do that for us. But as any seasoned investor will let you know, there is no surefire thing. Every single investment contains risk. So give with open hands, but with no strings attached. And don't make the mistake of thinking you're doing anyone a favor by giving to them. God does not need your favors. All of the money is his anyway. Rather, see that the person you are doing a favor by giving is yourself. Because the promise to us is we will reap bountifully. Paul says in Philippians, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And this is in the context of the generous hearts of the Philippians that he's commenting on. We do not need to worry about our financial future. The reality is money offers us a promise of security. And who is not feeling insecure in some ways right now given everything that's going on with the world? And yet it's an empty promise. Instead, God says, I'm the only one who fulfills those needs. As Tavia was saying in the worship, things are shaky. But he is the only solid one. Trust in him. Don't let money slip in and say, I'm actually what you need. He will look after you materially. And he will also look after you spiritually. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew. And everyone who has left houses, he says in Matthew 19, 29, or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus obviously did not mean that if you've left one wife, you get a hundred back. It's metaphorical. What he meant, though, is that we will never be losers when we give to God. The Lord can never be in another person's debt. And we should never be afraid of giving God too much. Oh my goodness, I've given him too much. What's he going to do? Spiritually or materially, you can never outgive God. He will always have more. Thirdly, everyone gets to play. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Each one. I remember when we um, first started here, we had this sort of ragtag bunch of people. We started with like six people in our living room, and we had a few people who had come in and out, and then uh, we started to grow in our living room. And I remember this one couple who were probably late 20s. Uh, we were talking about money, as we did twice a year. And uh, she said, I've never realized that I could be someone who gave money. I always just thought it was my parents who did it. 
because they always did it, and I just kind of went along with them. And now I could give money. I never really thought I should do, or I could. And what I've found is that I can. And it hasn't been awful. In fact, I feel part of it. It's amazing. The New Testament expectation is that everyone will give. Every single one of us. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And there is no um, better time to start than right away. We try to teach our kids about money. Um, and we've basically said to them, we've got a, how old are they? 13, 11, 8. That's how old they are. You heard it from me. Uh, 13, 11, and 8. And we've told them that there are three things you can do with money. You can uh, save it, you can spend it, you can give it away. Now, as it happens, each one represents one of those things very well. There is, I'm not going to tell you which one, but one is very good at spending it. Brilliant at spending it. One, very good at saving it. Does nothing else other than save it. And one just gives it away all the time. Um, she was watching TV this morning, and she watched this weird thing where there's a guy superimposed on the front of YouTube videos, just commenting about them, and things come up on them. I think it's a thing. Anyway, she's watching this, and they do various things. And now and again, they give money. And she rushed in and said, Daddy, Daddy, they're giving money to um, clean up the whole oceans. I want to give all my money to cleaning up the oceans. I went, that's wonderful. That's brilliant. Uh, and then she ran off. Anyway, the point is, each of us will have blind spots. We might be very good at spending. We might be very good at saving. We might be good, very good at giving away. Or we might be a combination of those. But what we try and teach our kids, and I would encourage to teach you, is learning what, which one of those you're actually could really work on. It might be spending. We have to encourage one of our daughters, please do something with the money <laughs> other than just holding it and squirreling it and counting it and then telling your other sisters, you have more. Spend it. Spend it on something. Honestly, we have to do that. I don't know what happened with that one. Uh, but anyway, that's where we're at. Um, everyone gets to play. Children, adults, whoever you are. The expectation is we all give. I would much prefer, do you know that um, the average church, or in, in churches, the average giving is from 30% of the congregation? I would much prefer us as a church to be absolutely dirt poor, but 100% congregational giving, than to be filthy rich with 30% of the congregation giving, because at the very least, I'd know that Hannah and I are doing something right. Our job is not to raise loads of money. Our job is to look after you, is to disciple you and teach you and help you become the people God wants you to be. And so if there was 100% giving, at least we would be tackling that. At least we'd be doing that part of our job. What happens after that, how much money, doesn't really matter, because ultimately, giving is a matter of the heart. Because finally, we're called to give with a happy heart. And this is how, where I will end. Verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the word for cheerful in the Greek here is hilario. It's where we get our word hilarious. It doesn't really mean hilarious, but it has that sense of um, joyful, wonderful, free, reckless, happy giving. It's laughing all the way to the bank in order to give all your money away. That's the sense that is there. 
Now, in the Old Testament, if you walked into the temple, in the treasury court, there would be 13 different boxes. Nine boxes would be for the tithe. Four boxes would be for voluntary giving. The tithe was obligatory, 10%. Set down in Mosaic law, this is what you had to do. And then there are these four boxes to give above and beyond anything else you like. Totally voluntary, no pressure. You don't have to do that, but it's there if you'd like to. Now, as I said last week, Jesus has completely fulfilled every tiny little aspect of the Old Testament law. It is all done. So that includes tithing. Tithing is finished. Do not tithe. Stop your tithing. You have heard it from me. Do not tithe. If you tithe, don't. Get it? Tithing is done. It's finished. It's like Jesus has taken those nine boxes of tithe and he has filled them all with himself. Right to the brim. There is no room. Even if you wanted to, you cannot get anything into those boxes because they are done. They are finished once and for all, forever. And all that is left is those four boxes of voluntary, anything above and beyond, anything that you would like to do, anything that you are not compelled to do, anyth- sorry, not, not, not compelled, not obliged to do, not forced to do. If you feel coerced into giving money, don't give money. If you feel guilty about giving money, don't give money. If you feel anything other than that this is what I want to do, then give from that place. If you don't feel like that, something has gone wrong, and we need to address that. You never have to give another dime. God will still love you as much as he's always done. He will continue to love you that much forever and ever and ever. But, let me challenge you, why settle for the bare minimum? As we've often said, can you imagine Jesus of Nazareth uttering a parable like, blessed are the cautious, or blessed are those who do the absolute bare minimum, the least that they can, the most that they could possibly get away with. Can you imagine Jesus of Nazareth saying that? As I said, to be a Christian is to be a giver. It is our identity. It is who we are. So, have a heart that is cheerful. How do you get one? Well, I think there is an element of chicken and egg to this. A friend of of mine said to me last week, we don't wait until God speaks before we start reading the Bible. We start reading the Bible in order to hear God speak. And the more we read it, the more we find that he actually speaks. The same with prayer, the same with any other discipline. It's the same when it comes to money. We don't wait until we're suddenly really, really generous. Oh, I've got so, or we've got so much money that we, can't, we don't know what to do with it before we give. We start giving. And from that, we become more generous, more able to treat money as we should as people living for heaven. So start giving and see how you become more generous. See how money has less and less power over you. See how you are not as anxious about it. This is what God promises. Test him in his promises, he says. Test him in this. 
It's like any other discipline. You've got to start somewhere. Um, this is a joke. I need to say that this is a joke because I've said something similar in the past and people have been really upset about it. Um, so I'm prefacing it with this is a joke. It's about golf. As all right people, right thinking people know, golf has offered nothing to the world. Golf is an abomination. No one likes golf. To play golf is to waste everyone, particularly your own time. It's offered almost nothing to the world. It will be great when golf ceases to exist. Almost nothing, but not everything. It wasn't that bad, was it? Gary Player was a golf player, and he was also called Player. And he said this clever little quip. He was asked, or no, he was accused of being a very lucky golfer. And he said, I find that the more I practice, the luckier I get. That's good, isn't it? Enough of golf. The same is true with money. The more you give, the more generous you will become. So, I know we're good Americans here. What's the bottom line? How much are we talking here? <laughs> give us some figures. Here's a figure. All of it. It's not what you wanted. This is the challenge, actually, from Jesus to every single one of us, including me. To be able to say, yeah, I can give it all if he were to ever ask. I know that I could not do that. If Jesus walked down here and said, give it all, if I was like the rich young ruler, and he said, like, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? He said, give all your money to the poor and sell your possessions and then follow me. I know I would find that incredibly difficult. I don't know whether I could do it. I'm just being honest with you. However, I do know that's where I want to get to. I do know that I want to have that amount of freedom, that amount of uh, complete devotion to the one thing that actually, in my heart of hearts, I know is the real reason for anything. The real reason that brings satisfaction in life is him. I want to get there. So the answer is everything, all of it. That's where we're heading. That's the actual number. But let me try and answer that question in another way. Um, Garen, could we have the slide up? We um, asked, and again, this is just for people who, for whom bread is their church. Uh, we, uh, I was praying last week, and I felt like um, I um, wanted to ask God what sort of number we should go for in this giving kind of thing. And um, I felt like God say to me, go big. And I wanted him to say, go small. Go, go nothing. That's what I wanted him to say. Uh, but he said, go big. And I did actually start getting quite excited about this. And I thought a big number would be 7,500 a month extra on top of what we had. What that would do would get us back to where we were pre-COVID. And I think we've been doing this for a year now back in person. That would be um, great. Sorry, pre-lockdown rather than pre-COVID. Um, but as I was feeling like 7,500 a month, that's quite a lot. I felt like God was saying, no, that's not enough. And so what, what I felt like God said was actually 10,000 a month. 10,000 a month extra in giving. So I'm just giving you the non-faith-filled ed version and then the faith-filled ed version, which is 10,000 a month. Now, the amazing news is we are already 2,500 into that, which is great. Um, but this is where I feel like God wants us to be by the end of the summer, and I am encouraging us to set up regular giving 
to meet this target. So how much of that could you hit of the seven and a half remaining? Here's another practical way of thinking about it. Think about how much money you wouldn't really notice that you could afford. It might be a dollar, it might be $1,000, it might be $10,000, I don't know. Think about how much you could, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even change a thing. How much is that that could come out? And why don't you just double it? Or triple it? Or add 10%? Or something like that. There are no rules. There are no rules, just start somewhere. Let me just tell you, just as we end, a few things about um, the church. We are supported entirely by the people who come. We don't have some big backers in Texas or on the moon or anything like that. We're not part of a denomination. We're completely just us, which is wonderful because it means that we have a certain amount of freedom to do things, but it also means it's on us, which is great because we know that people are giving because they want to be part of the church. Um, don't worry about what other people give. Don't. Honestly, let me save you so much heartache and pain and difficulty. Don't worry about it. Um, they'll worry about it. They can sort themselves out. You already have so many things to worry about. Don't add another one. Don't worry about anyone else. Just worry about you. What um, that 10,000 represents is getting back to um, something normal and kind of allowing us to carry on doing what we're currently doing to pay our staff, to do things like field day, to have rent in this building, to do all the ministry we do. That's what that represents. I would like to do so much more than that. We want to bring in more staff. We want to do more ministry. We want to have more impact across the board. But that 10,000 would basically represent allowing us to do what we're currently doing. So here is our budget for the year. 22, 23. I want to try and be as open as possible. If you have any questions, please um, email treasurer at bread.church and he will um, answer all your questions because he understands it. But here is a very basic um, look at our budget. Um, it adds up to something. I can't remember. It's like just under 600,000. Um, now, as you can see, the vast majority of it goes on staffing. Um, about 51%, uh, and that includes all staffing, all fees, all insurance, uh, all tax stuff, all um, contractors, all that sort of stuff, and the staff team themselves. Uh, then the next biggest is facilities, which is renting this building and uh, renting our office space. We've got an office space for the first time, which is great, or like a usable office space where we can have meetings. We had Breadman Group there, which was amazing. Uh, we'll continue to use it for various things. Uh, and then uh, there's some benefits. Um, our ministry budget, which is paying for things uh, like the worship life of the church, for things like field day, for church weekends away, alpha, all those sorts of things. Uh, it's set at 50, and then general admin, um, printer paper, um, some other things, <laughs> expensive printer paper, uh, is at 20,000. So what I would encourage you to do is, some people will find, some people will just go, I just, I don't care. I really don't care. I just want to give money. I don't care. Use it however you like. Other people will go, no, I want to know, um, th this is what I, s I want to give towards. So I would imagine yourself giving towards something that excites you. If you would like Raul to have health care so that he doesn't die, <laughs> just think, oh, 
My however much a month is going towards those benefits. Great. If you would like this ceiling not to fall down, think, oh, good, I am going towards the facilities. If you would like, um, print, if you really like printer paper, if you cannot get enough of printer paper, just think that's where my money's going towards, okay? Makes sense? Good. Um, you can see much more in-depth uh, things. If you want to know how much everyone's paid, you can ask our treasurer. He'll tell you. you, can, you know, we just want to be as open as possible because I understand that uh, often it seems a bit um, cloak and dagger. Is that the right expression? Yeah, when it comes to church finances. So we just want to be completely transparent. Um, can I ask you, could you be one of the 100%? And would you... Um, think about giving regularly. I know some people's cash flow is really lumpy. I think there's something really helpful, even if your cash flow is lumpy and you don't get paid monthly or weekly or whatever it is. Uh, there's something positive about just going, I know that some money is going out each, each month. Whatever happens to me, some money's going out that I can just know is there. And then as God moves, I can give more to it. Now, you should not give all your money to the church. I hope that goes without saying give to other things, but there is a cognitive dissonance in coming here, being part of it, and not having actually part of you part of it. So you should give something. That's all I'm saying. But you don't have to give anything. Um, I will end with this. We're going to sing a song in a minute, and we're going to um, take a collection. I, we came here from rainy old London because we were excited about what um, we'd seen God do there in an incredibly secular city. You think this is a secular city? You're nothing on London. I promise you, we've been secular for ages. We were like the OG secular. Uh, but I was so excited to see what a church in a liberal, um, politically liberal, socially liberal, post-Christian post, post city, what we saw, which was incredible things of God meeting people, God reigniting people's faith, uh, people meeting with the Holy Spirit for the first time, people becoming Christians out of nowhere, an incredible worship life, incredible teaching, discipleship, community life. It was very exciting. And that's why we came here, to build something similar. We have a unique perspective of not being American. It's difficult for lots of reasons, but it's also quite exciting for lots of others. Just one, I just know that there's lots of people who could really benefit from our community. So we want to grow. We want to bring... Do you know, I was talking to someone... I'm sorry, I'm just going to rant for a bit. I was talking to someone a while ago who um, uh, was aware of this church just up the road, who before COVID was something like 1,700 people coming on, on the Sunday. Now it's 80. 8-0. 80. Because basically a lot of people have stopped going to church and then going, oh, I realize I don't really believe in any of that, or if I do, I don't want to go to church, and I don't... I, nothing lost from not having gone. This is such a shame. This is such a shame. But what that means is that there is a crying need for people to be somewhere where politically we are saying that yes, black lives actually matter. Where we are saying that if you are gay or queer or working it out, you are completely welcome here. But also saying that we hold not just welcome, able to serve in any ministries because you're a person of God, but also that we hold to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the answer, always the answer. We are working it out together, but he's the one we need, and we will never shy away from that. This is what we've come to do.
I want this church to explode so that we can plant more churches. Not that we can have a big church. I don't think big churches are particularly useful, if I'm completely honest. I think lots of churches are useful. And so lots of good churches. I want to plant churches. Someone got in touch with us um, who is part of a huge um, mainline denomination. I think the second biggest in this country. And this person has basically said, I want to learn from you because our denomination is dying a horrible, horrible death. And we finally realized it's dying a horrible death after pretending it isn't for a long time. And now we need to do something where people, particularly young people, particularly in urban contexts, actually come to church, particularly people who aren't necessarily one or the other side of the political spectrum, but are um, open. We need to, basically, could you help us? And I said, like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? But this actually speaks of what we're doing here. I want to plant churches. We lost so many people when we moved from the west side to the east side. And it was the right decision. It was a very painful decision. But why don't we plant a church on the west side? Why don't we plant a church in San Francisco? Why don't we plant a church in New York? I bet you lots of people go, I'm moving back to Denver. They're always moving back to Denver. And they say, would you ever think about doing a church there? Yes. I know nothing about Denver, but yes. Because there is a desperate need. And that's what we're called to do. So 10,000, that gets us back to normal. More than that, we can do exciting things. Good? Good. So let me pray for us all.